part of the love that I have developed and the way that I have connected to the AA Big Book is by the story and the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. So what I want to do tonight is I want to tell you a story that is our story. So, and, and here's how I'm going to help you kind of understand what I'm doing. Um, my uh, grandmother is, she's a classic war bride, or she died, but she's a classic war bride, war bride from France. And so when I got older, I got very interested in our family history in terms of going back to France. She was from Brittany, he was from Rwanda, like wanting to research like my ancestors. That was part of, you know, when I was getting older and just wanting to know where did I come from and why, and it, it was so rewarding because I'm like, oh, that explains so much. I mean, especially in terms of the, you know, matriarchal Catholicism, and then my grandma was very strong around like, we were Celtic, and I wasn't allowed to say Celtic. I was, I had to say Celtic, or whatever, however you say it in French. But, you know, the point being that it was like, so what I want to, for you to do is I want you to think about that for a second. Think about whatever your family ancestry is, and how you would kind of be interested in kind of knowing, like, where do you come from, and why your family sort of behaves in certain ways. Like, it's very different to be Catholic than to be Protestant. It's very different to be East Coast than to be West Coast. And so this sort of bigger picture of where you come from can really help you understand your wiring. And that's, that's one way that I started to connect with the big book, was looking at, like, what is the story of Alcoholics Anonymous? So, this hopefully is going to be the most academic I get. I do tend to be on the nerdy side. I'm proud of it. Um, so, I don't know, play with your phone or something. You think it's too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want to take, so, so again, I'm talking to the newcomers. So, let's go back, okay? Let's just go back to the 1700s. That's how far we're going back. Before the 1700s, actually exclusively before the 1700s, if you had alcoholism, it was a moral failing. It was considered, you were considered to be, to be weak morally, and your alcoholism was a sign of your connection to the devil. And so not only were you morally weak, but it was dangerous to be in relationships. And the approach was, you know, to heal your morality. That was up until the 1700s. That was the, the pervasive. In the 1700s, there were a couple of doctors that, not wanting to be too religious, said, well, maybe it's a palsy of the will. So they were basically saying the same thing, but they just wanted to put it in in non-religious terms. But still, the idea was is that if you were an alcoholic, it was a moral failing, and at best, you were weak-willed. And that was what it meant to be alcoholic. So now, we're moving forward. 1840s, I'm only gonna touch on this because I'm gonna come back to this. 
1840 is something called the Washingtonian Comet. It's part of the temperance movement. So I'm not going to get into it because I'm going to come back to it. But just so you know, that's 1840s. There's a phenomenon that's hap that happens called the Washingtonians. <clears throat> it lasts, I think, less than 50 years, if even that. Like, I think maybe like 10 years or something. And then it dies. It's dead. 1908, something called, and, I, and here's what I want, I want you to start to get excited about. And this is why I want you to write this stuff down. Because what's going to unfold is just the miracle timing of things and how certain things happen at the right time. And certain people were in the right place at the right time. So around the turn of the century, 1908, the Oxford group comes into fruition. It's born, it's born. Basically, this guy, I have some information, but I'm not, you know, look it up on Wikipedia. I don't know necessarily all the names. I think Frank Buchanan or whatever. This guy is like, you know what? Christianity has gone. It's gotten soft. It's gotten soft. We need to go back to, you know, when it was the guy on the cry, whatever. Anyway, we need to go back to the beginning. And so he started this group that was called the First Century Christian Group. And it didn't take off here. He goes to England. It takes off there. And it takes off in Oxford. And hence it starts to be called the Oxford Group. Now... Some of you will recognize this. Here's the Oxford group. Oxford group believed that the root of all problems, okay, first of all, Oxford group believed everyone's a sinner. Everyone. All prob all, the root of every problem you have is fear and selfishness. They had a program of action. Oh, also, point of clarification. The Oxford group was not a church. You would go to church and then after church, you would have a meeting to talk about and do this first century Christianity. And at that meeting, you would go through a six-step program. First of all, you would admit that you're a sinner. Second of all, that you would recognize that all sinners can be changed. Third, you would recognize that confession is prerequisite for the change. You can't change if you don't confess. Four would be the change can access God directly. The change itself. The transformation is what connects to God. Once you, that happens, miracles can occur in your life. <laughs> Once the miracles can occur to your life, it is your responsibility to take the change that you've experienced to other people. That was the Oxford group. So that's happening. While that's happening, now here's what's interesting. The Oxford group caught on mostly to upper class, educated upper class. Also, it thrived primarily in the mid 30s. I'll get to why it died, but just think it's growing in popularity and it's peaking in the mid 30s. Also, the Oxford group had something called the four absolutes. Absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute unselfishness, and absolute love. So those were the four absolutes. So that's, that's happening over here. Meanwhile, we have a character 
I know his name. I have problems with names, so I have to write it down. I can tell you what people look like, but their names block. Do we have a character? Roland Hazard. We love Roland. He's an awesome guy. He was a chronic alcoholic, you know, but he had a lot of money. His family had a lot of money, and they were like, you've got to do something. Do Go take care of yourself. He goes to Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud is an atheist, but he's the number one psychoanalyst at the time. And Freud is like, no, I'm not, I'm not working with you. Second guy, Freud's like, why don't you go to Adler? Adler was a colleague, but they didn't like each other. So we're not too sure why he suggested that Roland go to Adler. But it's possible it was like, you know, go to Adler. Adler also, Adler was a Christian, but he also was a little bit into the whole, like, you know, if you have a problem, do you have sexual urges toward your mother? You know, kind of school of thought. Fortune, so think about this. Roland goes to number one guy who was an atheist who would have been like, let's spend an hour for a year on the couch talking about you in your relationship to your mother. But that guy doesn't want to see Roland. He goes to guy number two, um, Freud's colleague, Adler, and Adler, same thing. It's like, okay, we would have spent this whole time on the couch talking about your relationship to your mother, but I don't want to deal with you either. So he's forced to go to Oxford to go see Carl Jung. Now, why is this important? For the newcomers, I'll tell you why. Because Carl Jung was spiritual, and he believed in spirituality. So Roland Hazard goes, and he says, hey, I have this, I drink a lot, I create problems, can you help me? Now, here's what's important. is what Roland doesn't know is that Carl Jung is trying to determine, are you neurotic? And out of your neuroses, you act out. Or are you an alcoholic? And here's why. Because Carl Jung is, if you're neurotic, we can work on that. That's something that we can fix. We can fix your neuroses, you'll stop drinking. But I really want this to sink in for us here tonight. Carl Jung was like, but if you are an alcoholic, there is no cure for you. There's nothing. So he spends a year, he doesn't tell Roland. He just spends a year working with him. Roland studies with Carl Jung for a year, right? He gets all like, okay, doc, I'm ready. He's like, his family, I think, is in New York or the East Coast. He's in Austria. He's like, okay, I'm going to go back to my family. Thank you so much. This has been amazing. You have changed my life. He gets on the train or whatever. He goes to Paris to catch the boat back to the East Coast. He doesn't get out of Paris. He ends up getting drunk. He didn't even last, like, he lasted the train ride to Paris. And then he ended up getting drunk again. He, I think he went on a two or three day bender. And then he woke up and realized, like, are you, I mean, think about if you spent that much money for a year with the top, you know, union, well, he was the union psychologist, mm -hmm. and you don't make it, to, you don't make it out of the train station in Paris. I mean, just to, like, right? So he goes back to Austria, and he's like, dude, what happened? <laughs> and that's when Carl Jung realized that he was not neurotic, that he was an alcoholic, and he actually told Roland that. Now, I want you to understand that in 1908 or whenever, or no, this isn't 1908, this is like 1933 or something, 
whatever. At this time, here, I don't even think, imagine that it's in the 80s or early 90s, and you're in an office, a doctor's office, and the doctor tells you you have AIDS. Like, that's what it was like to be told that you're an alcoholic. There is no cure, and you're going to die. But more so than it, you're going to die, and you're going to, well, similarly, you're going to die, and you're going to die in social disgrace. That's what the sentencing that Carl gave Roland Hazard. And Roland, like, so imagine, like, you hear that news. I'm going to die, and I'm going to die in social disgrace. So he goes to Carl. He's like, please, please, is there anything you can do for me? And Carl Young says, well, there are rare, this is important, I want you to make a note of this, there are rare instances where people have spiritual experiences, I think it's called, in the big, we'll get to it, dramatic spiritual experiences, and then they, they become religious and they give up their alcohol. Very rare, but it has happened. That's your only chance, is to have some sort of spiritual lightning strike you, and then you might be able to defeat alcoholism. So Roland is like, okay, again, death sentence. Roland's like, I'm there. Tell me what to do. I'm there. Coincidentally, while this is going on, the fad of the upper classes is the Oxford Bridge. So Roland goes back to the East Coast. He's just like, hey, guys, you aren't going to believe this. I'm going to die. I need God today. <coughs> and Oxford is like, well, come to the Oxford group. So Roland does go to the Oxford group, and he does the six-step program of the Oxford group. And just so you know, Roland managed to stay, stay sober for about eight years on the Oxford group alone. Roland is very key to our history, but he actually never joined AA. And also, Roland, all, there's good reason to believe that ultimately Roland did die drunk because the family will not disclose the cause of his death. So that in itself is kind of like, and when we talk about this further on around needing to carry the message, it kind of does point to, but anyway, just so you know, there's a mystery shrouding like why he died. Anyway, so part of this is that, you know, if you're going to do this thing, you have to carry the change. Remember I said, the change must change. You have to carry it out. You have to go and convert, be a servant. So Roland's family is like, they are so happy that Roland is like staying sober. They're like, hey, guess what? Why don't you go to our summer house in Vermont? And take some time for yourself. Because they had big, huge businesses, and Roland was the son, and whatever. They're, they're like, their family's like, go to Vermont, enjoy yourself. While Roland is in Vermont, Ebby Thatcher is there. Another big, another upper class dude. Ebby, we're going to get to Ebby. Ebby's in book. Ebby is an alcoholic, straight up alcoholic. He ends up, I think. He had, well, here are two stories about Eddie Thatcher. Number one is he was he was there at his parents' house or some house in Vermont. He's painting the house. He takes a break to sort of you know appreciate his work. And while he's on a break drinking, 
um, birds shit on the side of his house. He goes and he gets a shotgun and he starts shooting at all at the house with all of these birds. And I think he ended up like in court for that. And like, oh, dude, seriously, you know what I mean? But that wasn't the big one. They're like, but that's when it's like that was an Ebony Thatcher story. The big one was when drunk, he drove his car into someone's house. So now he's before the judge, and the judge is like, okay, boom, I'm done with you. But Roland Hazard is there. And the judge knows Roland's family. And Roland is like, hey, let me work with this guy. And the judge, because, so again, think of the miracle timing of this. Because it was Roland Hazard, and because he knew Roland's family, he said, okay, go ahead. I'm not going to throw him in jail. Go ahead and work with this guy. So for new people, you're going to get to why this is important. So he works with Ebby. He gets Ebby into the Oxford group. Ebby gets sober. Now, but here's the thing. This, I love this part of it. Roland's like, look, dude, you're sober. You, you got to, now it's your turn to go find someone and carry the message. And Ebby's like, I don't want to. You know, he's like, I don't want to do that. I don't, I'm not, I'm not actually too sold on this whole idea. I'm glad that you got, you saved my ass, but, you know, and thank you for the Oxford group stuff, but I don't want to go out there preaching. You know, so again, keep in mind of like how we feel about missionaries knocking on our doors and being like, I don't want to be one of those people. That was Eddie. So, but what happened was, is Roland's like, you have to. And then Eddie, they were back in New York, and Eddie remembered his friend, Bill. Bill W. And Eddie was like, because he was too embarrassed to go out and preach any Oxford group stuff, but Bill was his old drinking buddy. And so he's like, okay, to please Roland, Eddie goes, to Bill W. and tells Bill W. about the Oxford group and, and the movement that's happening there. And we'll get into this in Bill's story a little bit. And Bill is like, so first he hears that Evie's coming and he's like, oh, my drinking buddy's coming. And then he sees Evie coming in looking clean and shiny and whatever. And he's like, what the hell? And Evie's like, I got religion. And Bill's like, oh good, more alcohol for me. You know what I mean? That's literally like what Bill thought was like, okay, great. You know, we're not going to drink together. I'm going to get this, all of this alcohol is for me. Talk all you want. I'll just be drinking the whole time. That was Bill's response to Evie coming. Now, what happened was, well, actually, I'm not going to get too much into that because that's, that's in Bill's story. We'll kind of get more into the details. But um, after Evie visits Bill on December, a couple of times, Actually, in the, in the big book, I think Bill mentions Evie comes away one time. That's actually not what happened. Evie came once, and then a few days later, he brought someone else from the Oxford group to come with him to kind of work with Bill. And then Bill, I think he got drunk like maybe a couple more times, and he ended up in Towns Hospital and had his white light experience. This is very important. I want you to make a note of this. So Bill had what Carl Jung told Roland to go get. So Bill's experience of spirituality was this spiritual experience. Like, boom, white light. He's like, whoa. You know, and it actually carried him, I think he said in his book, or Bill W's book, like, 
it carried him in terms of enthusiasm, you know, um, and enthusiasm in the sense of the original Greek word, which enthusiasm meant like you were infused with energy. You were infused. It carried him for three solid years. He could not stop talking about his experience in getting sober, you know, in terms of that white light. So that happens. On December 11, 1934, Bill takes his last trip. 1935, Bill and Lois start attending the Oxford group. They got to going, because Bill's like, this is awesome, this is great. So Bill has his white light experience, and because of Roland and Evie, you know, he wants to, like, oh, I, I now, oh my God, there's a God, and God exists. Holy shit, he wants to go tell anywhere, and people are like, well, we already knew that, why don't we come over here? So he goes over there, and that was the thing to do at that level, was to do the Oxford group. So that Ebby goes over there, or Bill goes over there to be with Ebby and Roland. But their thing is like, you gotta carry the message. And Bill's like, I gotta carry the message to alcoholics. Bill's like, this is incredible. So he spends six months trying to carry this message to another alcoholic. He can't do it. He is going and telling alcoholics to have a, you know, that he's found God. So now he's on the door. He's found God. He doesn't drink anymore. That's it. He's telling them that. And they're like, I I'm not interested. Why are you here? For six months he does that, and he is like ready to be like, I'm done. He's six months. He can't, no one, if they're even interested, they're not staying sober. They're just like, whatever. For six months he's like, okay, Lois, you know what? This isn't working. This isn't working. I'm just going to give this up. This isn't. And Lois says, he's like, I can't, no one's staying sober. And Lois says, you are. Very important. Again, a moment I want you to bookmark. For six months, he was telling people about his white light experience. He was sharing that with other alcoholics. None of them are staying sober. But he is. He's staying sober. So I don't want to put, I, I don't think I can stress, these are one of those moments, and we're going to come to them, where, you know, again, it's like uh, one of my favorite speakers, Lorna Kay, say, says, and heaven held its breath. Like, man, because there are a couple of times where Bill just wanted to be like, I'm done, this isn't working, and that's one of them. And when he did that, there was Lois saying, hey, You've been sober six months. I haven't seen you sober in six months in years. Quite frankly, as your wife, who cares if these other guys are not staying sober for the first time you are? Okay, so that happens. Uh, I got my notes here. Okay, so 1935, Bill Moe starts uh, attending Oxford Group, six months, year sober. May 1935. Bill and Dr. Bobby. Bill's in New York. He's trying to like do some sort of deal. He's like trying to make some money. He's not, you know, he's trying to get himself back up to having a lot of money. He's sort of trying to do some deal that takes him to Akron. Here's another part of the amazing story. He's in Akron. His deal falls through. He doesn't have enough money to get home. He, and also, he's like, hasn't been able to get anyone sober, and he hasn't been able to get a job. This was going to sort of pay, this was his last hope in terms of his career. He's like, my wife, who was a society girl, 
is working as a retail person at Macy's. You know, I have been ashamed to my whole family. I've got this deal that's going to turn everything around, and I go to Akron, and it falls through. So just think about that. And he goes back to the, and he doesn't have enough money to get home in his pocket. And he goes back to the hotel, and he's standing there in the hotel. And on one side is the bar, and he can hear music, and he can hear glasses tingling. And on the other side is a call box. And again, heaven held his breath. And I mean, I don't know how many, I just take a minute where you were there, if there were any time where it's like, you wanted to just say, fuck it. I mean, fuck it to the program and just be like, I don't care. I want what I want. And that's where he was at. And through, again, some sort of divine grace, he went to the call box. Now we think he just picked up the phone. No, he didn't. He picked up the phone and he had a list of names for the Oxford group, right? So he, but he is looking for an alcoholic to work on. He calls, I think it was 10 names, if anyone, I think it was like 10 names. Each person is on the Oxford group, but they don't care about alcoholics. So he's calling name, person, hi, I'm a member of the Oxford group. Oh, cool, I'm a member of Oxford Do you have any alcoholics I can talk to? What the hell are you talking about? No, I don't have any alcoholics you can talk to. And why are you calling me? Clint. Like he's going down. He gets to the last name. And this guy, I think I have this right. I'm open to being corrected. It's a lot of information to remember. But I think he called someone who said, I may know someone, who then connected him to Henrietta Cyberlink, who said, okay, you know what? I do have someone. He's a doctor. He has a drinking problem. I can try and connect you. And again, I think this is in the book. It can't happen right now, but maybe it can happen tomorrow. And that was Dr. Bob. So Dr. Bob is a distinguished physician in Akron, Ohio. He thinks no one knows he's an alcoholic. Everyone knows he's an alcoholic. This becomes important. So Bill W. goes over. He has to wait. And why does he have to wait? Because Dr. Bob, oh, I think Henrietta Cyberlink called Ann Smith, Dr. Bob's wife, and said, hey, guess what? There's a guy who wants to talk to, to Dr. Bob about alcohol. He says he needs to do it for himself. Isn't this awesome? Let's hook these two up. And I think Ann had to say, I'd love to, but he's passed out on the floor. Like he wasn't like, so they had to wait until the next day so that Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob woke up and was like, I don't want to talk, you've got to be kidding. I don't want to talk to anyone. Now keep in mind, because we forget this, because we are immersed in a culture and in a society that has started to embrace 12 steps, right? So we take all of this for granted. But Dr. Bob, he's like, I don't want one more person shaming me and telling me, like, why don't you quit? Why aren't you sober? Shouldn't you quit for her? What about your wife? What about your family? He's like, I don't want to hear it one more time. And how he gets sold on it is like, look, this guy says he wants to talk to you about his drinking. And Dr. Bob says, fine, I'll give him 15 minutes. I've heard people say, the same person, by the way, Clancy, he's like, 15 minutes. And then I listen to him again, he's like, oh, it was 10 minutes. 
typical, you know what I mean? So it's like whatever, this is all, this is our, what do we call it, our oral history. This is our oral history. So you are hearing me tell you stories that other people in the room have told me. So again, we gotta kind of go like, how much of it is true? The, the essence and the bulk of it is true, the details may be a little bit off. Dr. Bob goes, and he, or Bill W. goes to Dr. Bob, 15 minutes turns into four hours. And here's what Bill W. started to do. Oh, sorry, I left off some things. Before this happened, and after Lois said, sober you are, Dr. Bill W. went back to the hospital, the town's hospital that he was getting detoxed, and he was talking to his physician, and his physician said, he said, I can't get any of these people sober. I'm telling them about the white light and whatever. And he's, and he's like, yeah, but you're, you're not sharing what you know about alcoholism. Why don't you not start with your white light experience? Don't start with that. Start with your experience as an alcoholic, you know, and then tell them your white light experience. Now, I did skip the doctor's opinion, but we're going to kind of get to that. So there's more about the test. Okay, let me stop myself and interrupt. There's a side note. Side note. So remember I said all of this timing, Roland Hazard, Oxford Group in the 30s. Meanwhile, while this was happening, Dr. Silkworth had graduated, and he needed a job. It was the 30s. The one thing that doctors did not want to do was they did not want to work with alcoholics. Why? Number one, they're terminal. There's no cure. Number two, they don't follow any of your directions. <laughs> and number three, they don't pay their bills. So Dr. Silkworth ended up working at Towns Hospital because it was the depression. And jobs were really scarce. And Towns Hospital was a place that dealt with alcoholics. It's where rich people would go to dry out and do all sorts of crazy treatment. And that's where Dr. Silkworth went. And he went there, and he probably, he may have read about the 1700s, about the um, palsy of the will, meaning as a scientist, he was like, what if we got away from moral failing? Because that's not very scientific. And he did start to notice, like, you know what, you all seem to be reacting differently. Now, this is gonna, we're gonna get into, so I don't wanna get too much into this. But you all seem to be reacting differently. I think that you guys have a strange, abnormal reaction to alcohol when you drink that. And what we in the medical community call a strange, abnormal reaction to anything, we call that an allergy. Doesn't matter what it is. Strawberries, anything. Pollen, anything. <coughs> if you have a reaction that is not normal, normal being the, the average, then, then you are having an allergic reaction. So he put it all into scientific terms. So basically what he said to Bill is, you are not morally weak. I think you have a medical problem. So Dr. Silkworth puts it in medical terms, he, he tells that. And then he says, while you go out there talking to other alcoholics, this is a different conversation, of course, it's not the same day. He said, don't start with the white light experience. You know what I mean? Start with talking to them about your alcoholism. That's very important. So, where was I? Oh, Dr. Bob. So that's why 
when, when Bill W. meets Dr. Bob, he starts talking to Dr. Bob about his alcoholism. Now here's what kind of worked, was Dr. Bob was actually a very religious man. And he was already going to the Oxford movement, you know? So this is gonna become important in our big book history, which we have Dr. Bob, a devout Christian, religious guy already, but Bill W. was agnostic atheist. He was like, whatever. So it's a white light experience where boom. Now Bill W. being agnostic atheist becomes really important in just a few years. So he talks to Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob is like, this is awesome, let's do this. But Dr. Bob does not want to make any amends or reparations because he's worried about his reputation in town. He still thinks no one knows he's an alcoholic and he doesn't want to go tell people, hey, by the way, I've made some mistakes because he would have to admit that he was an alcoholic. So he's willing to talk to Bill W. about it and he's willing to do a little bit about it, but he's not willing to really disclose to anyone outside his wife and, and Bill W. that he has a problem. Dr. Bob is like, he goes to a convention, again, we'll kind of get more into the details of this, he goes to a convention that last year he got, what is it called, shit-faced? He got shit-faced at this convention. He's like, I want to go back to that convention. I want to show those guys how clean and sober I am, and I want to tell them about this message. So he goes a little bit involved. So he goes, he doesn't, he doesn't make it through the convention. He gets drunk again. Now, when he gets drunk again, and this again is something that I learned is sort of refreshing my history. When he gets drunk again, and what happened was is that he, the porters had to take him off the train. The porters called his nurse. His nurse had to call his wife and say, I'm sorry, Dr. Bob is here at the office. He's intoxicated, whatever. And Bill and, and um, Anne are devastated. Bill is like, I mean, again, he's like, this thing, I can't seem to pass this thing on. So they go and they get Dr. Bob. Bill W. still doesn't have any money to go home, but they go and get Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob's like, I've got surgery. I've got to show up for surgery. And Bill W. is like, okay. He gives him some beer to steady his, his nerves. They take him to the hospital. Okay, go do your surgery. And then they're waiting for him to come home. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And Dr. Bob does not come home. And they think he's on another planet. This is just, this is the end of it. No, Dr. Bob realized through, again, some sort of divine grace that if he was going to stay sober, he had to go and make amends. He had to work this whole program. And so he went around to everyone in town that he owed amends to, and he made those amends. And Dr. Bob stayed sober from that day on, okay? You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> June 10th, 1935 is Dr. Bob's last drink. That is AA's birthday. Because Bill W being sober is great for Bill W. But it's not until it's, it's not until it, what is the word I look like, that you're able to pass on this sobriety to someone else, that it's worth it. It's like if I have a million dollars 
and I keep it all, the, and I don't share it to you. Like, who cares if I have a million dollars? You know, but if I have a million dollars, and I go to you, and I'm like, this is actually people can do this. Where I'm like, oh, just pray, and you'll get a million dollars. You know what I mean? But it's like until that happens, my way of acquiring this abundance is is irrelevant. So that's AA's birthday. Uh, in 1939, the big book is published. Now, here's for the newcomers. Now we're getting to why, we're starting to get to why we started the big book. So, Dr. Bob, Bill W., you know, Akron, we got a New York group, we got an Akron group. I think in Akron, we had like 40 something people in New York, we had like 18. And they're like, hey, let this thing is working, right? They're like, oh my God, this thing is working. You've got 45 people here. I mean, it took a long time just to get one. Now you've got 45. Oh, we've got 18 here. Oh my God, this guy from Akron, he went down to Cleveland. He said, that shit is working. And these are men of big, huge egos. And they're like, we're gonna start a whole movement. <laughs> we're gonna, let's, let's get together, let's incorporate. This is gonna be huge, you guys. This is gonna be huge. Here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna build hospitals. We're gonna have missionaries go into other people to spread the word. And actually, why don't we also do a book? Why don't we do a book just to sort of make sure that we write everything down, but you know, hey, let's go to Rockefeller, let's ask him about, you know, I mean, that's their plan. Okay, so what happened out of all of that is a book. That's what happened out of that. No missionaries, no big hospital. Now why this is important is because, first of all, for our benefit, the original people in AA wrote what happened. And the reason why that's important is think about the game telephone, right? Are we all familiar with that game you played when you were a little kid where it's like, I say something to you, you whisper it to her, you lose her, I say cherry pie to you, and when, by the time it gets to you, it's Sasquatch. And it's like, how the hell did you get the Sasquatch? So that game of like things getting translated over, well, in 1939, they wrote down their experience. And we have it here in the big book, right? And it's the first doctor's, doctor's opinion, first one, 64 pages. No one's allowed to touch it. Every edition that comes out is going to have that. They made one change. This is my heritage when it came out. They made one change in the first 160, where it was like spiritual experience to spiritual awakening. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So, they do the book. A uh, big book gets published. So they, they do this book, they expect, like, oh, we're going to do this book. We're going to pick, well, let's do, I think it was like 4,000 copies. They publish it, and they're like, we are going to get flooded <laughs> with letters. Okay? So they go to, like, the P.O. box to get, like, all these flooded with letters. I think they had a postcard in there. Like, the book just did not take off. And so what happened, but they kept doing their work. And what happened is, is, and so it was like this grassroots phenomenon. So AA is still working, it's still growing, but this book that's going to create thousands of requests for information doesn't take off at all. And then in 1941, Jack Alexander writes an article. And here's why he was writing an article. He was writing an article because his public, he had, in a previous article, he had uncovered like some crazy cult something. He had, you know, uncovered some scandal. 
And so his publisher says, hey, go find out about this AA stuff, thinking that it's like they're scamming people. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're scamming people. And so Jack Alexander goes to find out about how these people are scamming other alcoholics and discovers that no money is involved and these people are, and each person is doing it so that they can stay sober. And it really is, in this sense, a very charitable and selfish, self, selfless um, mission. And he's blown away by it. He's like, you've got all of these men who are so like money, selfish, whatever, and they're being like totally, sincerely altruistic. So he, he's just like so floored that he like is enamored. And he writes this incredible article just about how wonderful it is. And then the flood happens. Then there's a flood of people like, please help me, please help me. So this book, which we're going to get into, was meant to be shipped to these people where there were no other alcoholics. There certainly weren't any meetings. It was like, here's what we're doing. And we're going to take you from what happens, what it's like, what happened, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. We're going to give you instructions, and you're going to, you know, do the best that you can. And if you have any questions, there's an address. You can write us your questions, and we'll, we'll answer back. So that's what happened. And we're back. Okay. All right. Okay, yeah. So this shit starts getting good. Okay. <laughs> so check this out. All right, so we have the big book, we have Dr. Bob, we have Bill W, we have the big book. The meetings are starting to work. We have meetings happening in um, Cleveland and in Texas, and then we have meetings happening. What happened was, I believe what happened for California is that a woman went, yeah, I believe this is a true origin story, and if it's, you can take it up with Clancy. Anyway, a woman who had the manuscript for the big book went to California and she posted an ad that said, um, ladies, are, are your husbands alcoholics? Come to this place. You know what I mean? And so they came to this place, wherever she said, and you know, they said 12 people, but don't you think that's a little suspicious? Like, why is it always 12? Let's just say like, you know, a dozen or so men show up and they're in this room and She's got the manuscript, and some guy's like, well, why don't we read this chapter, the one called How It Works? And that's why in California, you know, so or on the West Coast, we always read How It Works, because we just had the book, and we just had this chapter called How It Works. So that's pretty cool. However, sober alcoholics are still alcoholics. And if you, and if you have a lot of time, you can laugh, at yourself in early recovery and how, yes, you were abstinent and sober, but you were still pretty cuckoo. And so things start really falling apart because now, you've, so this is happening, but now you've got Texas arguing with Cleveland and Akron and New York are just like very, like acrimonious. And, and actually there was a guy in Cleveland who, um, he, they were Catholic. And Oxford group wouldn't allow Catholics in. And so he, so they're like, we're not going to go to your Oxford group. We're going to create our own meeting, but we're going to call it Alcoholics Anonymous after the book. And this guy in Cleveland actually tried to say that he was the original founder of um, Alcoholics Anonymous. So, and then you have like 
So in um, in Akron, you have Dr. Bob, who was a very pious man who wanted to follow the Oxford groups and the four absolutes. You have Bill W. in um, New York, who's like, the four absolutes are, that's about perfectionism. And alcoholics don't do well with that. That's not, meaning like, they're going to fail at that, and it's going to give them a reason to go drink. So no four absolutes. So now they're arguing. So this is all, so literally like after this amazing thing happens, you get these groups and they're, they're not getting along. And Hank P, this is just for nerds out there. So in New York, Bill W had a right hand man, Hank P, he was his buddy. And Hank P and Bill W really got, thank you, this is my pool boy. <laughs> I know how to pick them. Um, so Hank P was his, and they, Hank P was right next to Bill W, helping doing the GSO, helping doing this, whatever, and then they got into a fight. Bill W, yes, sober alcoholic, yes, founder of Alcoholics Anonymous for good reasons, which we can get into later, and still a human being with failings, and one of his big failings was women. And so they got into it, and, and Bill W. did have a mistress. He did have pro a lot of some of the, a lot of the times they were like men actively trying to protect other women from Bill W. because he was, you know, so whatever. And that just really devastated Hank P. because he's like, well, if we're supposed to be honest and whatever, and you're the founder, and so they had a huge falling out. And Hank P. went around to all the other regions and badmouthed Bill. You know, so that now you've got all of these re other AA groups who are now not listening to New York, not listening to them. I mean, basically, let me tell you that it was all about to fall apart. And then Bill W. learns about the Washingtonians. I told you we were going to come back here. And this becomes very, very important. And again, we're gonna get, we're gonna dial into a lot of these things that I'm hitting on right now that I try to say like stop and think about that. We're gonna get into it a little bit more because this is how you are gonna fall in love with the big book. You're gonna learn about these seconds and inches. You're gonna learn about like, oh, we take so much for granted. But here's really how you end up recovering. You end up recovering by doing exactly what this book tells you to do. Now the problem is, is this book is written in 1935 by a lot of upper class men, you know, and they're dealing with alcohol, which is a chemical addiction. We're here in 2019, we're women, you know, and we're dealing with a process addiction, which is food. And so again, my goal for this weekend is to help you get from this book being like me throwing it across the room or not liking it at all to getting to like my history and my recovery and my disease is in this book. And it's, it's my heritage. So anyway, so the, going back to like everything was about to blow up and then Bill W. learned about the Washingtonians. He thought that his group, Alcoholics Anonymous, was the first really sober movement that was happening. And he learned he was not. He learned that in 1840, and I'm, I'm not going to go into all of this, but I have this here for nerds who want to know more, you know, about the Washingtonians. The Washingtonians were a temperance movement. They were like, in the 1840s, you know, alcohol was just crazy problems, crazy. It was like they discovered it for the first time, and it was just rampant. 
you know? And so there was this temperance movement. And the temp here's the difference between sobriety. I'm, I don't drink alcohol, but I don't care if you do. That's, you know, I don't care if you do. I don't care if you sell it. Temperance is, I don't drink alcohol because alcohol is evil and it's a sin. And actually, we should not have it in the markets. We shouldn't make it. And actually, we should create laws that make it impossible to get it. That's temperance. That's a whole political social movement. And that's what the Washingtonians were. They were six drunks, and they said, hey, let's do this. Let's, let's get to six friends, six alcoholic friends. Let's get together, and let's sign a contract with each other that we will stick together and that if, and we will stop each other from getting drunk. You know? and, and they do, and they start, and it works. And they start, I don't know, I guess maybe religion was a, you gotta do your research on this. You can tell I'm a little sketch on this, but I get the point. Which is the point is, is that they managed to stay sober, and then they that six people grew to 150,000 people. Now this is in 1840. Okay, there weren't a lot of people in um, the United States. So, but as they were growing, and more and more people were getting sober and staying sober, they thought, hey, look at what we can do. We took this whole problem of alcoholism and we conquered it. And you know what else we should do? We should make it so that the temperance movement that we we just cure we just make it so that alcohol isn't even an option. And you know what else we should do? Because Abraham Lincoln showed up at one of these meetings and just said, "Hey, I'm not an alcoholic, but this is amazing work that you're doing." And the people who were in the Washingtonian was like, "We are doing amazing. We are amazing. Let's go. Let's go cure the world's problems. Let's go deal with you know slavery. Let's go deal with this." Let's just, and it, and it died. And it was like in 10 years, it was dead because they lost their primary purpose. They thought that if their primary purpose, and, and Bill looked at that, and he saw that was happening, and he, and he read the history of the Washingtonians and how they were divided and divisive and how they just blew it from the inside out. And he saw that that's what was happening in Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's where the birthplace of the traditions is. And I understand if you're a newcomer and you're like, well, why do we have to read the traditions? I mean, I was there. I totally get it. You're like, oh, God, it's a tradition meeting. You know, but trust me. You know, the traditions are like primary purpose. You know, I, I don't care about, let's bring back to OA. I don't, primary purpose is about overeaters anonymous and, and helping other people recover from compulsive overeating. In terms of Oprah's diet fads, Weight Watchers, we have no opinion. It's not our business. We stay focused on working with a 12 step, my 12 step recovery and transferring that 12 step recovery to a newcomer. And that's it. And basically all the problems that were happening, Bill was able to put in the traditions and he was going around proselytizing this and groups were like, no, we don't want to hear it. We don't like it. Don't tell. Basically, they were like, don't tell me what to do. That's literally what it was like. It was like Bill W. going, you know, I'm the founder of this, and here's what I think. And they're going like, you're having affairs, and Hank P. doesn't like you, and Dr. Bob doesn't like you, and don't tell me what to do, right? So it was the fact that, so they had a, a international convention. It was the first international convention. It was in 1950. Do you want to know why it was in 1950? Because Texas was going to plan an international convention for themselves, making it the first AA international convention. And Bill W. was like, oh, no, you're not. You know <laughs> what I mean? And so he hustled 
to be able to do a convention within six months so that that would be the first AA convention. Not only that, but it's like they were arguing about where to have it. Akron was like, I ain't going to New York. You don't, you're not the boss of me. You know, and New York was like, I'm not going to Akron. You know, don't tell me what to do. You know, I don't like you either. And so they went to Cleveland. And the, I know, you're like, really? You picked Cleveland? You know, but here's, I know, you're like, there was Texas, there was California, and your compromise was Cleveland. Well, here was the thing, is that Cleveland was also a very strong group, and Dr. Bob was dying. So he couldn't go very far. So Cleveland was, you got New York to go to Cleveland because it wasn't Africa. You know, and you got Akron to go to Cleveland because it wasn't New York. You know, so they had their first international conference in Cleveland. And through God's grace, which we'll get into, through divine grace, they passed the traditions. And trust me, I mean, that was like, that almost didn't happen. And if that didn't happen, we would not be here. Because if the Washingtonians can implode from the inside out, so can we. So I understand that you don't like the traditions. I understand that it feels whatever. But trust me, if you're new in OA, don't worry about it. You're a newcomer. Your primary purpose right now is your own abstinence and starting to do a little bit of service and connecting fellowship and whatever. But when you start to get some time, it's on you to start to learn about the traditions. Because it's old timers in the room that interject when the traditions are being broken. And that's on us. So. That's my, what do we want to call it? That was my soapbox moment on the traditions. So that happens. 1951, Lois found Al-Anon, family group. Now we're getting there. July 1951, first international convention of AA, approved 12 traditions, attempted to create harmony between New York, Akron, and Cleveland. 1951-52, this becomes important. Bill W. writes the AA 12 and 12. Now. Here's something important to know. The AA 12 and 12 is Bill's reflections on the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. It is not a book of instructions. It is not the instructions on how to work the program. That is in the big book. So the 12 and 12 was Bill doing a 1500 word reflection on each step a 1,500-word reflection on each tradition that he had put in the grapevine. And the reason why he, he even created the grapevine was because of the fractions happening between all of these different groups. And people were writing them letters, doing just going like, so-and-so's doing this in our meeting. Is this OK? Like, I want to kick this right. I mean, they just complain. I mean, can you imagine, like, just complaining? Like, Bill, come and take over and tell them that they can't do that anymore. You know, and so he would write these articles in the grapevine and send them all out. And that's how we got the grapevine, and that's where you got a lot of the writing. But just so you know, the 12 and 12 is not how to work the program. The 12 and 12 is Bill's thoughts about each step in each tradition. So 1957, very important year. You want to know why? Gamblers Anonymous is founded. OK? Now, it's not just that Gamblers Anonymous is founded. This is a very important year because AA is about chemical addiction. AA is about, it's a chemical addiction. It's drugs and alcohol. You ingest a particular substance 
you have an allergic reaction, yes, you have a disease of perception, we'll get into all of that, and hey, guess what? These 12 steps will work for your chemical addiction. So there's Jim W. He's an AA, you know? And Bill, who is also clean and sober, clean and sober in AA, he's sleeping with people or trying to sleep, you know what I mean? So they have these other behaviors. They're cross-addicted, basically. So Bill W. is cross-addicting with womanizing, whatever, and he had a mistress. You know, when he died, like, he was, he was spending three days with Lois and three days with this, this woman. You can watch the Bill W. documentary. So just so you know, we are not talking about saints. We are talking about alcoholics who are no longer drinking. Same thing with Jim W. He's an alcoholic, but he's got a gambling problem. Again, seconds and inches. He's thinking, can these 12 steps that are designed for chemical addiction work with a behavior addiction, a process addiction? And it works, and he does it, and it works. So first of all, that's amazing. We're going to get into that. Second of all is, in 19, that was 1957, and, and that's in California, Jim W's in California. They, it worked well enough that they did a commercial. They said, hey, you know what I mean? You got a problem with gambling? Try Gamblers Anonymous. And guess who was watching that commercial? Let's play, let's play a game. Who can, who knows, who knows? Jerry, oh my God. Yes, Roseanne was watching that commercial. Roseanne was watching the commercial on Gamblers Anonymous. She's sitting there with her husband, Marv, and they're like, hey, you know our friend, I couldn't get the name of the friend, if anyone knows the name of the friend, our friend has a gambling problem. Let's take our friend to this GA, you know? So Roseanne goes to the GA meeting, and she's sitting there, and in her own words, which you can get on the LA, LA, OALAIG podcast, you can Google Roz, and you can hear her talk about this. Roseanne's sitting there, and she is completely identifying with the shame and the guilt that these men, mostly men, have around their behavior with gambling. The secrecy, the lying, the hiding, the, you know, and again, then the, the feeling of regret, trying to cover up, trying to make up, the manipulating, and she's just bored, like, oh my God. Now, it took her a while because she says the next year she went back. So think about like, so she, just so you know, like this may be part of your story where someone's talking to you and you feel that identification and then three years later you go to a meeting. You know what I mean? So it's like, but a year later she goes back to GA and she goes up to Jim and she says, do you think this program will work with food? And Jim's like, well, I don't see why not. You know what I mean? It's like, I, it worked with gambling. I don't see why not. And here's how, again, the perfect timing. Roseanne's family was a family of overachievers. And so some of us will identify with this, meaning that it was not daunting to Roseanne to start a whole new 12 step program. It was, it was like it's in the family wiring. Like, well, of course. You're gonna start mountain climbing, you go to Mount Everest. I mean, that's what our family does. <laughs> so Roseanne is like, you know, I'm gonna start a program for girls, or for, for um, actually it was for I'm gonna start this program for food, compulsive overeaters, and let's get on this. However, I think that this book is crap 
It's so poorly written. And I don't like that God is included in any of this. So I'm going to rewrite these steps and I'm going to take God out. Fortunately, Jim W. was, she was still connected. She calls Jim W. like the first sponsor of OA. So, you know, Jim W. was pretty kind of tolerant a little bit until they were about to go um, do a commercial together. And then Jim sort of sat Rosanna down and said, you know, is it possible? And you guys probably know more of this. But basically told Rosanne, you know, why don't you work the program the way that it was written? And somehow through, you know, willingness. I, I know what makes me willing. I don't know if this makes you willing. But what makes me willing to accept direction is the disease. The disease makes me willing. You know, because I, of course, think, first of all, I'm like, I know what's best for me. Don't tell me what to do. And when you... <laughs> But when I'm in the disease and I become willing to get direction, that's when I become willing to get direction. So I can assume to a certain degree that Roseanne was not experiencing the full relief of her compulsive overeating, and that made her a little bit more willing to take Jim's direction and just to work the steps the way that they were written. And that's what she did. So that happens. Um, in 1960 is OA's first meeting. Mm, yeah, that's kind of boring. Uh, oh, this gets important. This is why we're here. The other thing that happens in the 60s is all of this psychoanalysis and all of these treatment centers and all of these new wave information starts flooding in to drugs and eating disorders and everything. And what happens is, and this even happens in AA, is that this book starts to be considered antiquated. Like, oh, that's what they knew back then, but we have all of this new information. And in 1970s, there was a flood of new treatment centers and people doing psychoanalysis. And all of these, and not AA, not 12-step, but doing all this, and, and doing some really good work around you know, drug rehabilitation. I mean, it's not useless work. It's just that all of that started flooding into AA meetings where they're not reading the big book. They're barely reading the 12 and 12. And again, this is the thing that amazes me, is that again, the AA could have completely died in a completely different way. I don't garden, but for you that do garden, you know like when a plant starts to take over another plant and totally kill it. And that's what was happening. And here's what's amazing. When that was happening, these two guys in, oh, I can't remember, sorry, Oklahoma, Joe and Charlie meet at a conference. And in, in secret, almost, they're reading the big book. You know, and it was like this weird, obscure thing. It would be like if I were in here and I was, I don't know, I was like, just to give you an idea, it would be like if I were in here and I was like, I read the first edition of Jane Eyre. And I was like, and we're all in here and I'm like talking to someone, and there's Wendy, and it's like, oh, she likes Jane Eyre too. I mean, that's like, to give you an idea, it would be like, why are you reading that old book that is irrelevant? That was the attitude. It was like, it's irrelevant now, you know? It's old, it's historical, it's whatever. And Joe and Charlie are like, you know, there's some good shit in here. You know what I mean? And so they're meeting at, you know, they're going to all of these AA conferences and everything. And here's the thing that I love. It's very similar 
to Dr. Bob and Bill, which is, is that Charlie started to invite people who also maybe wanted to, you know, study the big book. And Joe was a little irritated at first. He's like, I thought this was our thing. You know, what are you doing? You know what I mean? And But again, he gets over it. The other thing that I love is that they were doing this. Like, it was really, really small. And I tried to find this story, but I can't find it. So, but I think it's true because I heard it from a speaker once. You know what I mean? Even though I can't find that speaker again, which is one of the conferences that they were just getting together and doing this big book study. And again, think of it as this, like we're all here and Wendy and I are studying Jane Eyre and then you decide you want to be like, oh, wait, this is okay. And, but you guys are like, oh, those weird people over there. Okay, we take this for granted. But at the time, Joe and Charlie reading a big book is like, why are you guys, why are you guys reading that? I mean, we've got John Bradshaw, PBS, we've got Hazleton, we've got all of these. Like, why are you reading that book? And so they start to, to do these like big book studies where they're just going through the book line by line. And they start, and they're, first it was just them, and then it was a small group, and then it was a whole room. And then there was like maybe in a bigger room, and then what happened was is this guy came and they heard the Joe and Charlie do their little spiel. And he's like, can I record this? And so he asked the next time that, it, that he would record it, and they were having an international convention. And what he did was, is he took the recording of Joe and Charlie, and they were doing a door prize. So they had, but it was table seating. So at the convention, they had this come in, and what this guy did was he picked, he had 100 tapes, and it said door prize, you know, 100 or something, but he picked the people to give the tape to. And each person he gave a take to was somehow connected at an intergroup level. You know what I mean? It was somehow like each person was like secretary or GSR. Someone was on a GSR level. And he took those 100 tapes. And so even though he says to the room, he confessed to this later, he says to the room, hey, you know, we've got some random prizes. Check under your seat. Well, it wasn't random. He had planted that because he, he understood that what was happening was important. You know, he understood that AA was getting lost to treatment centers. I mean, treatment centers are great and they have their place, but it's not Alcoholics Anonymous. It is not 12-step recovery. Treatment centers help you get to 12-step. You know what I mean? And, and so he did that and then became this, like, big book comes alive craze. Now, I'm here to tell you that I am not going to do a Big Book Comes Alive weekend with you. That's a very specific format. And, and actually, there's one that I saw that was advertised two hours away, what is it, next weekend or something like next week? But it's, it's a very specific where Joe and Charlie go through the book line by line by line. What I can tell you is that my sponsor went to a Joe and Charlie book. What I can tell you is I've listened to three separate workshops of Joe and Charlie. So I definitely am influenced by Joe and Charlie, but I'm not going to be doing that this weekend. I'm just telling you, I'm just illuminating again, like these inches and seconds where I'm like, this thing almost dying. So Joe and Charlie happens <coughs> around the 1980s and it revives the big book. We all take that for granted now. All of this like, oh, it's a big book meeting. Oh, we're doing the big book. That would not have happened if it wasn't for Joe and Charlie. Now, it's not necessarily that it's Joe and Charlie. It's that there is a power greater than us 
that seems to be threaded through, that is trying to carry this message. Because we are dying. We are dying from alcoholism. We are dying from drug addiction. We are dying from codependency. We are dying from food addiction. And there is, however slim, there is a possibility for full recovery from all of these problems. There's a sort of saying that, it's an AA saying, I don't know if it's in here, I've heard an AA, where if you've got 10 years in AA and you're not in at least three programs, you're in denial. You know, it's true, it's true. I qualify for seven, you know what I mean? I've narrowed it down to, I do OA, I do Al-Anon, and I go to open AA meetings, you know, and Al-Anon slash ACA, but I qualify for a lot, and I read their literature and I find it very helpful, but the road does get narrower. And the benefit of, of trying, of getting sober and abstinent these days is that we have an awareness and a consciousness about cross addiction. And when you're a newcomer, we're not gonna bring it up. We're like, hey, you know what? You get abstinent, don't worry about anything else. When your next addiction becomes a problem, trust me, if you're working a program, it will start to become intolerable to you. You don't have to worry about it. You know, just stick with like, you know, just stick with where you're at. Anyway, so this all happens. Joe and Charlie revised the big book. Meanwhile, and I kind of want to get to where we're at today. So always going along, but in 1987, Food Addicts Anonymous, you know, um, is founded. You know, in the 1990s, um, Anorexic Bulimics Anonymous is founded. Now, I don't have, I was gonna say I don't have any problems. That's not true. <laughs> yeah. um, I think if you can find recovery in any 12-step program, more power to you. I personally do not agree with FA's restrictive policies that they set. However, I, I would totally welcome FA recovery. It's just there are particular things that I'm like, you know, that's actually, I feel like that's actually a shaming aspect of this program and I, and I don't agree with it. And keep in mind that um, I have an experience of my roommate being told in the 90s that she had to get off her medication because she wasn't abstinent. So I don't know if that's still true anymore, but that's that's my, my only problem with FA, is like we shouldn't be telling people not to take their meds, you know? But, um, and then ABA, I find that book very informative and I think it's really powerful because through the work of ABA and other people, they're recognizing that anorexia is actually very different than um, bulimia and compulsive overeating. And I think that's very important that we know those distinctions. But the point is, is that, you know, there was a big, huge surge in the 80s of, you know, Overeaters Anonymous. Well, you know, guess what? That's when Jane Fonda came out with her workout video. You know what I mean? It's like, and, and so there has been a sort of recession in terms of OA, and part of that is a couple of things. One, there's more than one food food 12-step program. Two, Weight Watchers and what is it called, weigh and pay programs are learning about the tools that are working in OA and 12-step and whatever, and so they're creating these platforms where you know members can support each other and talk to each other and, and, and everything like that. And here's why I bring this up, because I didn't realize why I was bringing it up until just this moment, because I am a compulsive overeater. 
I'm a compulsive overeater and a food addict and a bulimic and a sugar addict for sure, the way Bill W. was an alcoholic. Meaning, I don't, I'm not here because I don't have anything better to do on the weekend. You know, I'm not here because I didn't try all those other things first. I'm here because it was the last house on the block and it was the last place I could go. And so in this book, we're gonna sort of talk about like if you're a real alcoholic versus a heavy drinker. And the reason why I wanna bring this up is because there are people in OA who come here and think it's a free way and pay. It's a free diet plan, food plan. And, I'm, and if you can get some recovery here, that's great. I'm not worried about those people. My heart goes out to you if you are comparing yourself to those people. And that's what I want to protect you from. Because, you know, again, it's like, it's interesting to me, like, when they say hard drinkers. Oh, he may be a hard drinker. Well, now what we know is like, okay, in 1935, you called that a hard drinker. But it's 2019, and what we call that is we call that an alcoholic with a little bit of a higher body. That's what we call that, you know? So we're gonna kind of get into that. But I guess I just wanted to kind of find a place to kind of end, which is like now we're back to like why we're reading this book, why this history is so important to us. Because if we didn't have this, if we didn't have the traditions, if we didn't have the experience of the Washingtonians, we would not be here. And I need you to know that that would mean I would have my face in the toilet every day. I would be consumed with shame every day. And my thing wasn't, I don't know how you wear your disease, but my disease was I looked really good on the outside. And I had a really strong front. And you would think that I was a really empowered woman, and I was really smart, and I was really smart, but how I felt about myself and my body when no one was around, I didn't want to live. Like, food got me out of bed in the morning, and only you, some people in the room can understand that, that I would wake up and be like, I can't, I don't want to actually be here. I don't want to be on this planet. I didn't agree to this bullshit. I didn't agree to these parents. I didn't agree to this political agenda. I, I didn't agree to so much shit. And so I don't want to play. It's sort of like if you got cast as a role that you never wanted to play. How did I end up having to play this person? But I would think about breakfast. And I would be excited. <laughs> I would be like, okay, let's just, Go make myself, and breakfast, it had to be super sexy. And then on top of that, like, how I, so that got me out of bed. But the thing is, is that I gotta tell you that it's like, when I got dressed, I made a point of never really looking at my own body. I got dressed as a way to be a sort of like, as a way to protect myself from your criticism. So I made sure that I was dressed in a way that I got, that I was passing for normal. You know, but the fact of the matter is, is that I couldn't actually tell you what my body looked like because I didn't want to look at it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Are there any, can I say, thank you. I need you to nod your head. You know what I mean? Because that's, they don't talk about that 
in Weight Watchers Diet Weight Gain Program. They don't talk about perfectionism and how perfectionism is shame. They don't talk about how shame made it so that I wouldn't even allow myself to have the recovery I had. I had two major relapses, and I had to learn in program that the reason why I was relapsing and through the grace of my sponsor was I wouldn't let myself have recovery. That's what shame can do. And that's what shame can do to us in the rooms. And so we have to address shame in our recovery. And I've got a lot of information on it. I'll give you guys my phone number. I'll give you guys, I have a whole drive full of documents, tapes. I did a retreat that's different than this big book workshop. This is why I am so passionate about this. Because it saved my life. You know, and because it, I'm not just like, don't want, I actually want to be in this body. Can you wrap your mind around that? Like, I wore leggings, I am 10, I am 15 pounds heavier because, you know, from last year, I have just had one blow after another. I am not kidding. The final blow was getting laid off, okay? We're gonna tell myself, I'm like, you will know, I'm like, I'm sure that you've had times in your life that it was like, the perfect storm, where it was like, you're, when you tell the story of your life, you're going to say, well, those two years were just devastating. I'm in that period right now, right? And I am 15 pounds heavier. And you know what I did for the first time? Because my mom gave it to me. I wore those stupid legging things. <laughs> you know what I mean? And while I'm 15 pounds heavier wearing leggings and a shirt and walking around feeling comfortable, looking at my body in the mirror. And how did I get from not wanting to get out of bed in the morning? How did I get from like living from the neck up and sort of just dressing myself as a sort of calculated experience to protect me from your criticism? How did I get from there to being 15 pounds heavier than my normal weight and putting on leggings and walking around and rocking the Portland airport like I don't give a shit? You know what I mean? How did I get here? Here. Here's how I got there. Here's how I got there. And I want you to feel just as curious and just as passionate about like, how the fuck did Nicole get from throwing this book across the room to giving me this impassioned speech about AA and the big book and how she can get out of the bed in the morning because it's just a good day, you know? And that's what I'm hoping to share with you this weekend. That's why I'm saying this is not a Joe and Charlie weekend. I totally recommend the big book comes alive. And I have that drive and I will give you that information and and in the, on the drive that I give you that has a link, I think I can even tell you right now, it's like Tiny Earl slash NLS 12 step, but let me, let me check that. But anyway, there are audio files in there, and in one of those audio file folders is a Joe and Charlie Big Book Comes Alive. I totally recommend that you listen to it. Please, please listen to everything that I have. Please read every document I have in there. Please read every article. Please listen to every audio tape. I want you to feel as free from the incomprehensible demoralization of an eating disorder, perfectionism, shame, body image dysmorphia, as I feel. And the only way that I get to feel this way is by giving it away. It is only because you are here with me and you are listening to me and you are nodding. And I can say like, I didn't want to look at my body, I didn't want to, and you were nodding your heads. If you were not nodding your heads, and I was in this room and I just said that, I would be consumed with shame. 
And I cannot bear being consumed with shame. I need relief from being consumed with shame. And how I have learned to relieve myself from shame is through food. And you want to know why? Because I'm a control freak. So I don't want to drink because I'm in charge. I just want to be numb from the neck down. You know what I mean? I'm the designated driver. And so there are a lot of reasons why food works for me. And that's one of them. And so for the newcomers, I want you to feel hope. For the old timers, I want, trust me, I mean, it's a bitch have time. Because this is the bad news. It doesn't go away. I don't, my time in the room, it expires at the end of the night. Tomorrow, I wake up, I've got 24 hours. That's what I've got. The disease is, is wait, what I get from this is I get, it's sort of like working out where you build muscle, you know? And I just, I have a little bit more muscle around doing the third step prayer because it's what I do. You know what I mean? I'm going to meeting because it's what I do. Oh my God. You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm good. I mean, it's just like, okay, that's what I do. It's Thursday night. I'll talk to Sharon. Hi, Sharon. How's it going? Tell me what's happening. What's up, everyone? Um, you know, and that's what I do. And so my hope, and that's why we do these weekends. We do these weekends because the way that you combat shame is empathy. And the only way you get empathy is through connection with others that say, yes, me too. Anne Lamott calls it the church of me too. So we put on these workshops and we have these events so that we come together and you can spend time together and you can see each other nodding. So I get that I'm sort of leading this thing, but I really, my wish for you is that if all you do is sit here and take notes about what I'm saying, is you're, you're missing it. You're missing it. It's, it's helpful, but that's not what's going to keep you sober and abstinent. What's going to keep you sober and abstinent is in a moment alone with the shame, you can pick up your phone and you can contact someone, even if it's just a text. You know, and I'm a big proponent of God's wife. Don't try and get me on the phone. I'm exhausted talking. You can text me all fucking day long. I'm just like, and I'm a big proponent of a God's wife. So I implore you to make it a personal challenge to get 10 numbers of people you don't know. And if you know everyone, I, I don't think you could know everyone. Because there might be some new people in here. But maybe someone that you, you know, you've seen, but you don't have their number. So if you do that this weekend, if you get 10 numbers and you leave with that, that's all, that's it. You won. I can leave right now. But I'm built for the weekend. So, you know, we're going to go through, I'm going to go through the big book with you, but, you know, quite frankly, we're done. We're just like, the rest is great. So, anyway, thank you very much. Thank you.